You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, a writer, entrepreneur, and change maker, and I've dedicated my life to sharing stories of how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives. You just heard a great original composition by my son, Asher Schreiber. This podcast highlights some of the great ideas and activities people do every day to make the world a better place. So much of the meaning we find comes from interacting with great people, developing relationships that are mutually beneficial, and doing work that inspires. I hope you'll be inspired by the people you meet on this podcast. We all need to find a way to make meaning in the mundane. I'm Lynn Galadner, and today in the studio with me is Karen Divis, digital engagement editor for Corp Magazine and a widely published and incredibly prolific author. I'm going to read Karen's bio, and then we're going to have a little conversation. So Karen Divis, who graduated from the University of Michigan, go blue, with a degree in English, English and in communication in 1995, is a Metro Detroit writer who has blogged for Time Magazine, worked the business desk at the Detroit News, and written for many other publications. She is the author of three books, The Ford Wyoming Drive-In, Cars, Candy, and Canoodling in the Motor City, very cute title, Better Made in Michigan, The Salty Story of Detroit's Best Chip, about Detroit's tasty potato chip manufacturing history, and The Witch of Delray, a look at a 1931 murder mystery set in Detroit's Great Depression. Her latest book, Secret Detroit, is a travel guide to Detroit's awesome and intriguing landmarks, architectural achievements, and historical highlights. It published in April 2018. Welcome to the studio, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. It is such an honor. I don't know anybody making more meaning or finding more purpose in her work than you. It's just great to have you on the show. Oh, that's a wonderful compliment. Thank yeah. you for that. Well, so let's just start with like the big, the big everything. I see you everywhere all the time promoting your books, speaking, um, and so many books come out right in short succession. How do you do all this and how are you getting everywhere to be able to promote these books? Well, the opportunity to write full-time on a freelance basis kind of fell into my lap when I decided to leave a full-time job when I was working at the Detroit News Mm -hmm. and found that my infant son, who I decided to stay home with, never slept. (laughs) So he did everything opposite of any baby book. So I thought, okay, we need to be unconventional and we're going to need to make this work. Uh And I needed that outlet of creativity to offset kind of the quiet of a household that I wasn't used to being in. I was used to the hustle and bustle of a newsroom. Sure. So I started writing. And when the kids got older and went off to school, then I had like a seven, eight hour block of time that Uh was completely my own. Uh And instead of going to Target every day, which I (laughs) firmly had intended to do at one point, I said, all right, I have this opportunity to continue to explore topics that are interesting to me Uh and in a way find the deficits in my own education and fill them in. My husband loves history, and it's always been a passion of his family's, Uh and it's always been a hole in my background. Uh Uh-huh. Never had a love for it when I was younger and then started writing so much about Detroit that you stumble upon interesting characters and people through everyday conversations. And 
I had a great story run in the Detroit News on drive-ins. Okay. And that's when the publisher of my first book, the one about the Ford Wyoming and Dearborn, uh-huh. approached me and said, we want books on drive-ins. We're going to do this big nationwide push. Wow. Would you write about the one in Michigan? And they picked the Ford Wyoming because it's one of the largest at the time in the world. Sure. And I was like, this is it. This is my destiny. Okay. I, every journalist and probably anybody that really has an opinion wants to write a book. Right. And that was what I was going to do. And I had no blueprint, no idea what I was going to do. And it really was a shift in my career that I didn't even recognize at the time. Okay. But now I look back in complete shock and in some degree awe and thankfulness that yeah. that was what happened. Sure. Because uh, it gave me this whole different point of view and I was able to redefine who I was. I had continue to define myself as a news reporter, as if I was still sitting in that room with sure, everybody. Sure. And really, I wasn't. I, I well, mean, I kind of diverted in a way. But you're still writing stories all the time for Corp. Do you still write for the Detroit News? From time to time. Yeah. Uh, yes. So you're freelancing. Um, you're doing an incredible amount of content. And you're writing books. So now four books. And so, um, you know, how do you balance all that? How do you juggle it? It really is that idea of balance, which we all know doesn't exist. <laughs> but in my attempt to please, I guess, both masters, the master uh-huh. of I've chosen to send my kids to a faith-based school. They go to a Catholic school. Okay. So that takes money outside of sure. kind of everyday budgeting. So it's like, well, freelancing makes me happy. And it does pay for the bills of different things that we choose to do as a family. Sure. Okay. Win-win. Then in those times that I have still free, I could go to Target. But again, <laughs> that was chosen uh, that it may be not the best idea for my budget and my need for, uh, I guess, having a long-term project. Sure. I always liked having something on the side okay. that kept my interest. So that became how I balanced it was in the morning is freelance. In the afternoon is whatever passion project I particularly chose that day. Okay, And these books have allowed for that wonderfully in that they're about a quarter the size of a typical book you'd see from a a best-selling publisher. Okay. So they're more accessible to do in a short-term basis. And then they keep you on a pretty tight leash. They're short deadlines. Okay. So it focuses you quickly. Okay. And I'm always motivated by a deadline. Yeah. If you don't give me one, I really can't function. Exactly. And so if they said a year from now, we want a book about potato chips... And I said, all right, yeah. I can make that happen. Actually, I, I harassed them to do it. They didn't They, they didn't see the, the glory of Detroit uh, yeah. potato chip history as much as I did. Yeah. How did that topic come about? How did you get interested in doing that book? Well, that's, that is what's great in a way of having two different streams of interests of your short term and long term is short term. Sure. I was writing stories about Cars Nuts based in Madison Heights. Okay. Fantastic company, really a success story where they, they sell their snack foods nationwide. Sure. Well, the guy who owns it, Nick Nicolay is the heir or the, I guess, reigning supreme uh, founder's grandson of a potato chip company called New Era. Okay. And everybody around this area has some New Era something in their office. It was amazing to me when I would go to like antique shops or thrift stores, you inevitably see these tins of potato chip companies. Sure. And then Better Made itself has a collection. Uh And so I was intrigued with this. And one day was talking to Nick Nicolay for an interview for my so-called day job. Uh Uh-huh. And he said, yeah, that was one of my most incredible memories is of my grandfather and the taste of the fresh potato chips off the line. And I thought, how can we do this? How can we do this that would keep these companies' memories alive, Uh but at the same time, uh, Better Maid's history ran throughout. So it was like, okay, I've got a great long-term story that I could tell and, and kind of document something that no one had documented yet. Okay. And that's been one of the greatest pieces of feedback was sure. the photographs that we were able to collect 
at the time for that book uh-huh. were one of a kind. There really isn't a lot of photograph archives of potato chips being manufactured. And it's just it's a it's a rare little piece of Detroitness uh-huh. yeah. uh, that I was happy to be able to save because now all the gentlemen who I interviewed for that book only a few years ago have started to pass away because oh. they're in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. So I'm so proud to be able to do something, yeah. you know, however small, little niche to preserve a little piece of what it was to grow up in Detroit in yeah. those decades. That's really beautiful. And it is so important to document those histories, personal stories. Um, I mean, we know of Detroit as the Motor City. We know of Detroit as Motown. Um, I don't know that its potato chip legacy is as widely known. So that's a really interesting little niche. Are there other niches you've discovered of you know specific industries or products that are very Detroit? Oh, that's what I love about doing this is you you, you kind of play that in between game. Uh-huh. So everybody understands, like you say, certain parts of Detroit's history. So how can you find the stories that got forgotten okay. and elevate them? Okay. And to me, this is the best part of what I'm doing right now uh-huh. is trying to one up the other so-called Detroit <laughs> historians. So you know that so-and-so is a Belle Isle expert. You uh-huh. know that so-and-so uh, has an expertise on the Ferry Seed Company. Uh, those are their territories, let's say. Okay. So you need to find your territory. And mine is kind of all over the place uh-huh. because I really diverted from a building, a business, and then a true crime story, for example. <laughs> yes. So I feel like the fourth book kind of brought them all together, and it's that it's a, almost like a tourism guide about the city. Yeah, so it took me, all that and put it into me, one. Tell me a little bit about Secret Detroit. I haven't had the joy of reading it yet, um, but it's every time I see a post from you, there's something about Secret Detroit. So just t- take me through that process of how you hit on this topic and, and what are some of the gems in the book? Well, this is one of my favorite things about the book was it's one of these occasions when the travel writers and either all were booked Uh and had other assignments and things they were doing. (laughs) And so everybody kept taking a pass on the book. And I only found that out later. I I like to think that I was the first choice. But you know what? Life, you don't always get the first. You get sometimes what's meant for you. Exactly. So I say it was meant for me. So when I I heard the topic from this publisher, they wanted someone to take a look at all the things that were kind of Detroit, but were underground or maybe not known to the general public. There are so many people in Detroit that knew all this stuff, and I applaud them. Uh But even I, as a traveler, of those streets over the last 20 years didn't realize half the things we had. Sure. And so that was the summer of adventure, was taking my two kids with me on their summer break, and we would hit these four or five places a day okay, all summer long. Uh-huh. And we would either do like a tour of the Motown Museum, or we would go find a statue that we had heard about, or we would look for this art park that everybody was raving. Uh-huh. And that became not only fun to do when it wasn't 90 degrees, they, sure. they complained a little bit about that, <laughs> but it also became a way to kind of see neighborhoods I'd never seen okay. and to understand a little bit more about what made Detroit tick. Uh-huh. So it was the best assignment ever sure. in that it took all these little factoids I had heard over the years and brought them to life. Okay. Or almost like my Detroit to-do list. Uh-huh. Uh, someday I'm going to go do that tour. Nope. Someday is now. <laughs> and we're going to go there. Like yeah. I'd never been to the Dawson Museum oh, of all the shipwreck. And it's awesome. A fantastic resource. Yeah. Incredibly beautiful. Well-organized. Uh-huh. You know, half of Belle Isle I didn't even know was there practically. Right. right <laughs> so yeah. it, it kind of got me out of the house and into the city in a way that I had not before. So it was a, it was a passion project in more ways than one. Sure. And so then that became, okay, what do we include in the book? 
Yeah. Okay, well, let's do a, a secondary round. Let's uh-huh. look at what else is out there. Uh-huh. Maybe there's some new things that just popped up. Sure. And what amazes me is even in the course of when the book was researched in 2017 to when it was published now, I could probably add 10 more new things. Oh, my goodness. Because wow. either someone found something that was interesting or something opened. Yeah. That was like, oh, that's incredible. Yeah. I didn't know we had that. Yep. Yep. So that's hopefully great. someday we'll do a revision. But yeah. it's one of those things that I'm glad I did because it really added a depth to the conversation that I didn't have before. Sure, sure. Loved so it. So your next book needs to be about Detroit's oldest rowing club, which is the Detroit Boat Club. It's yes. where my husband and I row. And um, and I love it. I'm just this, you know, we discovered this four or five years ago and we learned to row and it's just, we don't do it competitively, but there are masters who row 5 a.m. Most, most of the year. Um, but the Detroit Boat Club, in all of its paraphernalia, and it, it was was a beautiful building. I don't know that it will ever be restored to its full glory because it's such a massive project. But it um, calls itself the country's oldest rowing club. Yes. And so somebody needs to write that. I yes. mean, I don't know whose territory it is, <laughs> but I will read that book. I think that would be fantastic. Well, that's the challenge of doing these books to some degree. It's like Secret yeah. Detroit, I can mention them, and I, and they're in there. But the idea of how do you tell an effective story yeah. and give that drama right. um, is really what has changed my writing yes. to some degree. Is huh. I had been really good at offering facts because right. that's what they teach you in journalism school. Right. But how do you string them together in a way that is is interesting and truthful and takes the facts uh, in a whole different way? Sure. And I think that to me has been one of the, again, most interesting parts of this process, this uh-huh. journey, uh-huh. is studying how great storytellers do it. And yeah. I wouldn't put myself in that category. Category. I'm a good storyteller right uh-huh. now, uh-huh. but I love reading other people's work and just being blown away saying, yep, that's the goal. That's the new goal, you know, and, and keeping moving my my own dreams forward. That's awesome. So how have you seen your career morph and evolve? And what do you think is next? I mean, you started as a journalist, you ended up um, combining that with being a book author. Um, so you're writing long, long form pieces. Um, as I, the mom of four kids, I know that that time ends and they go to college and then it's more than seven or eight hours a yeah. day, which is cool. Um, so, um, what do you see as the next step in Karen Divis's career? Well, I'd love to do a variety of things because uh-huh. I, I find myself interested in so many different storytelling techniques. So uh-huh. like I love podcasting. I'm uh-huh. addicted to podcast listening. Oh, I love so, it. So radio or podcast. I'd love to see if I could work with someone on that. Uh-huh. Um, I definitely want to stay in the book writing zone. Uh-huh. And I have two ideas right now that I'm kind of researching and saying, are these the ones that could take me to that next step up? Okay. Um, I'd love to have the experience of having written something that is, again, a story that shocks and surprises people. Like, I didn't know that. I don't sure. remember that person from history. And now they're brought forward again and, uh-huh. and not forgotten. That's right. a big uh, goal of mine is to kind of find the people who have been forgotten and remember them or uh-huh. give them some voice again in what's happening, even how they affect current events. Sure. And then the other thing I want to do is I do want to find that little in between. There's the, yes, it takes you three years to write a book. There's the article that takes me that morning, but that that beautiful long form in between Uh Uh of telling stories that are relevant, but maybe not to a book length. Sure. I feel like that one is missing for Detroit to some degree. Okay. So I'm not sure who or where, but I always love the opportunities that I'm finding to do it as new publications come online or uh, different mediums exist. Like who knew we'd be doing this even a few years ago? Right. It's totally intriguing. And I love that this is open to every possibility. Yeah. Um, This communication 
communications and journalism and media has never been more exciting, even though it's changed a lot. Yeah. It's never been more interesting, in my opinion. It, it is wonderful to see all the new tools and techniques that are grabbing attention and through which people are sharing really powerful stories. It's great to have a multimedia approach to things and, um, you know, really attract all the senses in the storytelling per- pursuit. Um, so on this show, we talk about how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in life. And I wonder if you could share with our audience a little bit about how you've found meaning um, or what you would define as your purpose and how you've sort of um, built your life around that. Yeah, for me, I think a lot of times it's all around who are the people that kind of existed in this realm who may change and then were lost. Uh And so that's been the most meaningful to me as a writer is whether it was when I worked at the newspaper and did obituaries for a time, which Uh every young journalist student does. I remember. I did them too. (laughs) Loved it (laughs) because I would hear later from a friend that maybe attended the funeral that they put the article I wrote on the memory board. That's great. That one has stayed with me for the longest amount of time. Sure. Or when I worked at a small newspaper in Adrian, Michigan, uh-huh. uh, wrote about someone's relative and they gave me a small guardian angel statue that oh. I have in my home to this day uh-huh. to say that they felt like that's what I was able to accomplish was give that person a little bit of a, a, a meaning yeah. and, and put it in print so that everyone knew about it. Sure. So that's what I want to do now. And that's what gives me the most meaning is if you can take someone who's existed that's 100% true. Uh-huh. And and that's where I find my skill set. I would love to write fiction, love to write fiction. But I really feel like right now what I've developed is a real strong nonfiction bent. Sure. And if I can find some way to honor those people that have come before us. Yeah. So I would I speak at a lot of small uh, history kind of focused book talks. So sure. we have genealogical societies, historical societies, libraries will ask me to come talk about the books. Great. And the most meaningful thing that happens to me is the book is already out there. I can't maybe change it, uh-huh. but people come and bring me new information wow. or experiences that they had. So I had a book event for the potato chip book, as I call it, uh-huh. where someone came and sang the new era theme song to uh-huh. me <laughs> and just did like almost like a tap dance along to it. Uh-huh. And that was That's just such so a cool. amazing amazing moment that someone just wanted to share that part of their childhood. Like, I remember hearing this on the radio and I just have to sing it to you. Yeah. Uh, One of the book events around the Witch of Del Rey, which is a true crime case Uh where the woman was uh, put in jail for a murder she didn't commit. Uh There was a woman who came to a book talk most recently that grew up with one of her sons Uh and said, that's him. Oh, wow. That's his history. Huh. No wonder he always looked a little bit this or, or seemed a little sad or just oh. different things. It gave that that part of her life and his memory context. Okay. Like Gubby, you know, Gubby, <laughs> the neighbor that I thought of as just, you know, this this very nice older man. Right. Had all this kind of crusading. Yeah heroic, uh-huh. I felt, efforts to save his mother. Sure. She would still have stayed in jail if not for what Gubby had done. Yeah. Um, an incredibly moving moment for me is seeing that they come to these events and want to share what they know with me. Sure. And that is great because I'm never stopping learning. Like yeah. for me, that is the best part of what my profession is and what gives it meaning. Yeah. Is that my understanding grows with every book I read, with every article I write, and I feel like I'm a better person for yeah. it. I'm much more understanding and sympathetic. And I needed that. Yeah. I definitely had the uh, teenage, I know everything like everybody else. <laughs> yep. And that somewhat spills into adulthood. Uh-huh. And I'm so glad to be told sometimes that I don't. Right. It takes me a while to absorb <laughs> it. 
But I do. I get there eventually. Yeah. Well, and and these books have been very meaningful for that reason. That's really cool. I think one of the most special things about the type of writing that you're doing is that you're showing each person's importance um, on the Detroit landscape, on our history, on the community, the collective community. And I remember when I was interning at the Oakland Press many, many moons ago, um, and I had to write obituaries. And I remember somebody told me that you want to figure out which ones are the most interesting, quote unquote, obituaries. And I thought, how sad to not be one of the most interesting ones, because every single person was interesting and important in some way. And I think the kind of writing you're doing is showing that. And and maybe this whole conversation about making meaning, finding purpose is to figure out how each of us is important. Um, even if it's small, it could just be on my kids or on my husband or in my little corner of the world. I'm important in making an impact on others. and And the world is a better place for having done that. Those are the stories that resonate most deeply with me is not only the idea that like this can happen to you, Uh but that it is such a small thing and has such lasting impact. So everybody to me is important. And I always felt like when I did work as a reporter full time, that was my best asset Uh was that I could see interesting stories and no matter who was uh, put on my interview list for that day. Exactly. And I could find some way to tell their tale in a way that would interest others. Right. And now I can understand that more, again, as a mother, as a person who tries to volunteer in her community of why everybody matters. Sure. And I remember telling my kids, and they won't get it probably to their parents as well, like, you're never mean to anybody. Because not only in Detroit is it the biggest small town, everybody knows everybody. But everybody is somebody's baby. Yes. So that mean neighbor that yells at you over the fence because you left something on your sidewalk or, you know, whoever, it might be that driver next to you on the freeway, whatever the place, whatever the time, that's somebody's baby. Yes. And somebody loved them. Yes. And so you should treat them with humanity and respect. And for me, as when I, again, became a mother and once I started understanding some of these stories, especially, ironically, in a lot of the cases, they did not have children. Oh, and so you to track them down and to find them, yes. you had to go through either extended family or through newspaper reports and come back at them. Sure. But then you'd find out that they have scholarships set up. Right. Or they, in the case of one woman I'm researching right now, donated three quarters of her money when she passed away to an orphanage. Oh, She had no amazing. children. Yeah. But yet children meant something to her. And you're like, Wow. What well, is that? Well, sometimes you know. people who've built these, you know, business empires or they were so entrepreneurial, even like Oprah, you know, they don't have biological children of their own, but they're impacting the world and others in very meaningful ways. And I think that we need both 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 kinds of people. We really do. Well, Karen Divis, it has been such a pleasure to chat with you on the Make Meaning podcast. I'm always impressed by your latest, greatest book, and I can't wait for the next one. I'm sure there's something in the works. Um, but it's just such a delight to talk with you. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to join us and talk about how you make meaning. I'm honored to do so. Thank you again.